My husband and I bought a place in the Catskills, and so I'm spending a little time here doing some painting. Is there snow outside? A lot. Yeah, we've got like several feet of snow. You're in California? You're in like LA area? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I feel like I definitely haven't seen you or really talked since you left New York. I want to hear all about what you're doing for True and your yogic background of growing up in the ashram. Oh yeah, lots of exciting stuff there. <laughs> two sides of the same coin in some ways. Let's start with your background since that was your beginning. Sure, sure, yeah. So you have familiarity with it as well, but I grew up going to an ashram in upstate New York with my family. My parents were hippies, they still are, and they were very into uh, yoga and meditation, and so they found this ashram with a teacher in upstate New York, and we started going when I was about nine or 10 years old, and it was amazing. I think as a kid, and especially as a teenager, to grow up around a really open and loving community of people that were all very open to self-discovery, I think it really helped me find a sense of self as a young person, which I think I was very privileged to have that. How did your parents find Sita Yoga? It was just a random series of events, right? Like I think how we find all our passions, but they were seeing an acupuncturist who was, we refer to somebody who practices this line of yoga as a devotee. So they were seeing a acupuncturist who was a devotee. And I think there were maybe some photos of the teachers or gurus in the acupuncture space. And uh, my dad asked about it and uh, was told like, oh, it's my spiritual guide. And my dad was like, oh, I want in on that. <laughs> so then we, there was a local center where I was growing up in Cleveland. And we went to that a couple times. And then eventually we made a pilgrimage as a family to the Catskills to visit the actual ashram um, and retreat center. And yeah, it's just an amazing place. I actually live not too far away from it now. My parents are still very involved. I'm still pretty involved. Unfortunately, with everything happening in the world right now, it's not currently open to visitors, but it's continued to be a really big part of my life ever since then and going on, oh my gosh, 25 years or something like that. Was it Baba Muktananda at the time or was he, did he pass or was it Guru Mai? Yes, it was Guru Mai actually. We got involved with Siddha Yoga. That's the lineage of teachers. Baba Muktananda was Guru Mai's teacher and he transitioned out of his physical body in 1982, I believe. And we got involved in the community in the early 90s. So at the time it was, it was Guru Mai. But it's funny because we had been actually living very near the ashram at the time when Baba was teaching in, in the area. And then we had moved to Cleveland. And so my parents always felt, oh, we were so close and we missed meeting Baba. But they actually live in a house right now that was formerly his residence, which is amazing. So there's a very strong connection to Muktananda in our family. My parents have lived in this house where he formerly lived. They've been there for almost 10 years now. And there's a lot of like strong Baba energy. And there's a lot of very cool like Baba stories that happened in the house one that's really fun is there's this beautiful bathtub that is like old and like from the 60s like the whole bathroom is very 60s deco 
It's amazing. And there's these stories about how when Baba used to take his baths in, in that room, the devotee is mostly Indian at the time, would go down to the basement and unscrew the taps on the pipes and they would collect all the water and then they would distribute it as his bath water, as holy water, which is very like, it's a very traditional Indian thing to do. It's, I think that's something that we don't really do in Western culture as much, but it's a very traditional part of, you know, Indian practice. So your parents live in Baba's old house. Yes. Yes, they oh. do. Yeah. Wild. Yeah, it is wild. It is. Very cool. There's just a couple of, of houses in the U.S. where he's has residence. Yeah, it's pretty, it's special for them. It's special for our family to have that connection. Before the quarantine, was Groom I still coming out and teaching? Because last I heard, she was not coming out into the public. Yes, she was. She comes out and, and does teachings at the ashram, not necessarily outside the ashram, but she's still very involved in the ashram. And for those that are there, she's still very visible. And throughout the pandemic, they've been doing virtual satsangs and virtual practices where it's it's still very possible to feel involved, even though you're not there in person. Yeah, it's and, and hopefully once all of this is over, Whenever that happens, we'll all be able to, those that are involved can start to go back again and, and be at the ashram in person. I wish I had that experience as a child to be exposed at such a young age. Yeah, it was definitely unique. I think, especially, I think about being a teenager and the idea of like self-discovery and self-exploration and just, I don't know, with that feeling of being like an outsider. I just, I didn't have that in quite the same way that I think some of my peers did. Because I think it was just like those feelings were always really encouraged. And the idea that the self is something to explore and everyone is really different and beautiful and unique. Yeah, I didn't think of it at the time. That's not what I was thinking of at the time when I was 16 and I was at the ashram. I was still like a moody little brat. But now I look back on it and I'm like, wow, that was an incredible thing to be able to identify with. What do you feel like it has given you in terms of your practice? Because for me, my entry point was different from yours. I was studying asana at the time, a strain of yoga called Anyasara. Mm -hmm. And the guy who founded Anyasara was a student of Guru Mai. So Guru Mai was referenced often. And my meditation teacher, Paul, who teaches a derivative or a strain of TM. It's basically the same thing, but he calls it something different. He was a student of Guru Mai and Baba. That's what exposed me to her books, to that lineage, etc. And what it gave me was a practice of the heart and words to define my yogic experience. But for you, what did it give for you? That's an amazing story too. I think it's so interesting how people come into their life self-practice. For me, it's, it's hard to say because it's been a part of my life for a long time. But I think what I would probably say is that it gave me a practice. And I don't know that I would have had one otherwise. I don't know that I feel like I'm somebody that would have sought that out. My, it's different from my parents. My parents are seekers. Like I would say if I had to 
describe my parents. They are spiritual seekers. That is a huge part of their identity and how they experience the world. That's not me in the same way. I'm not like that in, in the sense that I seek it out myself. And, and maybe it's because I was given a practice at a young age and so I like had it handed to me, but I don't know that it's really something that I would have gone off and looked for as an adult if it hadn't been a part of my life. So I think having the ashram and having Guramai, having a teacher in my life has given me like the desire to have a practice where maybe that wouldn't have been so strong otherwise. And I don't know, it's interesting, like even having a practice from a young age, it still took me a really long time as an adult to come into it and want to have it be a regular part of my life. Like right now, I have a daily yoga and meditation practice that has been really important to me for the past few years, but that wasn't the case even five years ago. I think it's really been within the last three or four years that it's, no, I meditate and I practice yoga daily. But before that, it was just more like passive and intermittent, which that's just how it went for me. But I'm glad that I have it because it it pushes me to seek out that part of myself. I feel like for any child who gets exposed to that, you had a really good karma in your past life because that's a one up on relationship with self and knowing who you are and having the clarity and grounding underneath your feet. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, Having that as part of my karmic experience, I think has been very transformative. And I feel like I sometimes I'm like, oh my, what did I do to deserve this? And I hope I'm still doing a good job in this life. What's amazing too is some people don't even need it and they're already there. Who are just Buddhas within their own nature, but they have no idea what a samskara is. Like they don't need these things. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I think I also know so many people that like could use a practice in their life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I hand this off to you? But yeah, I think the people that come into this world with that awareness are very fortunate people, but rare. I wish the desire to have that self-discovery was more common. I think the world would be a really better place, a much better place if people wanted to transform it for the better. That seems obvious, but I, it's weird to me that it's not the case that so many people don't feel that way. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know that it's available. Or if they do see that it's available, they don't actually know what it does. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they want, don't want to try something new that might help them. Yeah. Yeah. Right? True. Yeah. It's very true. In the West, it's so the antithesis of what we're taught. Yeah, it's interesting. It's so funny because it was like not my experience growing up. Like I feel... Yeah. Because I had such a non-traditional growing up experience. Everything was based on Indian culture. Like so many of my parents' friends were Indian. That was the basis for how I referred to so much of the world. And then when I like went to college and even in like high school and stuff, it was just, it was interesting realizing that I was raised in this way that was not traditional for somebody that looked like me. I think about things in a way that, that maybe somebody that had a Midwestern white upbringing wouldn't have thought about the world. I see it in many ways from a more traditional like Indian perspective, which I feel like sounds weird. And obviously I'm missing a huge part of that, but it is part of me. And I, I can't really deny that it's in there. And it's a lot of how I think about things.
That's so funny. So you were around a bunch of yogis and staff on robes and walking barefoot in the grass, and you thought that was the world. <laughs> that was normal to me. And just for comparison, not that Christianity is like the normal thing, but in the more like Ohio background that I had, I would say more of my community was like traditionally Christian in some sense. I've actually never been to a Christian service before. That's just not, and I had a lot of like Jewish friends and things like that. And, but yeah, it's like my reference point is more Indian spiritual temples. That's what it means to me. Were there a lot of kids around you growing up there? Oh my gosh, so many kids. Yeah, there's still a lot of kids. Gurmai loves children in a very pure way and really just encourages families and the joy of children. And we used to sing and put on plays and there's a lot of support for the, the youth that were brought up in city yoga. I feel that was my experience. And my friends that now have children that are growing up in, in the ashram, of which there are many actually i think it's a really fun experience for them too you're just like this roving tribe of children like causing trouble in this holy space <laughs> mm, how special it's cool but yeah lots of kids and i'm still there's still i would say a foundation of my friend group a lot of us have dispersed and one thing that i didn't actually mention earlier that i'll just quickly say that was also really cool is that it was a very international community which was a, a huge piece of it too that again i didn't necessarily realize as a kid like what a privilege that was but i had friends from South Africa, of course, from India, from Mexico, from Europe, like people came from all over the world to be part of the ashram community. And so it was just like a very global international community where everybody's culture, everybody's background, everybody's skin color, everybody's language was like accepted and embraced. And now I live in New York City and it's like really cool to see the parallels there where that's just very normal to me. Like that diversity and that inclusion is something that I think like I really seek out in the world because I was exposed to it from a really young age. And, and that was, that's great to still have friends that are all over the world in part because of City Yoga. Yeah, my yogi friends are sprinkled all over the world as well. And I feel so lucky because a lot of people don't have that. A lot of people's friend group is either in one city or maybe two cities, but definitely there's a lot that are only in one country. I was just actually like looking at some old photos and I came upon one of a friend of mine who's who lives in South Africa and I was like, oh my God, I wonder what's going on with them. I haven't talked to them in like 10 years, but I like to think I could just pick up the phone or get on a plane and be like, hey, can I come visit you? And it probably would be fine because like you have that background, you grew up with someone, there's a real love and a real connection there. And I think especially my friends that I have that I know through City Yoga, there's there's an extra bond because it's something that that goes beyond just how you, like your circumstances in the world. It's like a real heart connection where your world has expanded beyond just yourself in a, in a really interesting way. And I think the desire to seek that out, the other people that are doing that, it's a really strong bond. I know we're not really supposed to talk about these things of spiritual experiences because they should be kept to the self. I was always told that by my teachers, but is there any, just one that you could share where you felt either your heart expand or your reality shift, something of that nature? I'm very lucky probably that 
is a somewhat common experience for me and it comes and goes. Like sometimes I would say my spiritual practice is more fruitful than others, but I had a really lovely morning today actually where I woke up really early, like earlier than I wanted to wake up. And instead of being like, ugh, I want to go back to sleep, I got really excited because I was like, oh, I can do some spiritual practices. And I think just that desire to be able to practice and realize that I had some time for it, that was heart opening just in itself. But it wasn't even while I was practicing. It was just the desire and the ability to have some time to do. So I think it, it can happen in really small ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be this like transcendental blue waves of violet, although that's cool too. But I think just that love of having something to practice is a really special thing. Beep, beep. Hi friends, have you heard of Brave? Brave is a fast, privacy-preserving browser that feels like Google Chrome, but without the ads and the various kinds of tracking that ads come with. I was using Chrome before for its minimal and uncluttered interface, but Brave has made it so easy to import bookmarks and extensions over that with its extra privacy feature, I'm a newfound fan. The Brave browser is free and available on all platforms and is actively used by more than 20 million people around the world. Speedwise, it feels more responsive and also feels private and secure. Try it out at brave.com. If you enjoy these episodes and you find that it adds value to your life, please consider supporting the podcast through Patreon, www.patreon.com slash higher states. Connect with me on Instagram at higher states with two S's at the end. Why two S's at the end, you ask? Well, someone out there is keeping the one with one S hostage and has not responded to my DMs. So if you're out there, please let me have it. Last time I checked, it didn't even seem like you use it. Okay, okay, I digress. Now, back to our show. Yeah, definitely. For me, one situation and experience sticks out in particular, which I always reference back to, and it really fueled me for the rest of my life up until now and up until the future of whenever. And it's when I first started meditating, my teacher gave me my mantra and we were saying it together. We were practicing together. And as I was closing my eyes, I could feel the mantra, clean my heart, actually being doused in a bucket of water and being wrung out and then (laughs) laid out to dry on a clothes ring. I felt the sun rays on it. I felt the ringing. It was so wild. I had never experienced anything like that before. All from a mantra. Yeah. And closing my eyes. (laughs) You're like, what kind of trippy stuff is happening right now? (laughs) Like, what the hell is this? (laughs) Really crazy. Yeah, Yeah. it's interesting because like part of me almost, I don't wish for anything different because like I was given what I was given in my life and I'll just accept that and say it's a blessing. But sometimes I hear about those experiences, especially from adults of like how they came into their spiritual self. And to be honest, I don't remember that from when I was like seven, eight, nine. I don't remember really having those experiences. I remember other stuff from that time, but I don't really remember this key moment of, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to think about that. Oh, if I had come into it as an adult, would I have had that realization? But yeah, I'll just accept the blessings that I have and let that other desire go. The grass is always greener, right? Oh, it's always greener. Yeah. You were ushered in 
I was ushered in and that's amazing. So mm -hmm. I'll, just, I'll just be grateful for that. Yeah, that's a different sort of gift. Yeah. Yeah. One of the central teachings in city yoga and just like in, in the yogic world is the idea of peace and harmony for all beings, for everyone. And I think, again, that idea of spiritual attainment and peace within oneself, it, it comes with a huge appreciation of nature. It comes with a lot of respect for others. It comes with just respect for the natural world and the spiritual world. So those were always huge, huge things that were very present in my life. And I think also my parents were hippies. And so they always had the really strong love of nature and the world. And it was just always something that was very important to me. So I don't know that it was only the spiritual side of it that did it for me, but I definitely think, yes, it was a contributing factor. And when I look back on it, it's interesting because I remember even saying from a young age that I wanted to work in the environmental world, which I didn't even realize, but my mom showed me this thing that I had written when I was like 13 that was about how I wanted, it's, it's so specific. It's about how I wanted to work in the building industry to support environmental action, which is pretty much exactly what I do right now. And it's just so weird because as a 13 year old, I don't have any memory or recollection of wanting to do that, but apparently I did. And I wrote a letter about it. Wow. So no, it's so random, but, but yeah, so it, it worked out, I guess. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think definitely the the hippie ashram vibes and the hip, hippie, you know, parent upbringing always, you know, had a very strong connection with, with nature and, and supporting the environment. Aren't you responsible for the composting bins in Brooklyn? I remember when I was living in New York, that was new. Yeah, I would not say I'm responsible for it, but I was definitely involved in it. Yeah, the Brown Bin Food Scrap Collection Program in New York. Uh, that's actually how I got involved in the type of work that I'm doing right now, which is, which is related to zero waste advocacy. But I got involved with the New York City Compost Project, which is basically an advocacy group, grassroots organization for composting. And I got really into that. And it was right around the time when the Department of Sanitation was rolling out an additional uh, recycling option, recycling for food scraps. And I made a career jump at that point and got involved with them and did a lot of like outreach and support for the rollout of that program, uh, which was really fun. It's unfortunately been discontinued right now due to COVID mostly. And we really hope that it comes back once the city budgeting is under control. But yeah, so I was involved, not responsible, but, but it was a cool way to get into the kind of work that I'm doing now, especially because it was very on the ground and again started in that grassroots zone. And I think what I work with now is more large-scale corporations and bigger clients. And it's important to have that background of just having talked to the New Yorker on the street about recycling. I think if I hadn't had the experience of, of going through that and like talking to people about composting, talking to people about recycling and waste diversion and why it's important, I would never be able to do my job right now. And so that progression actually really does help. I'm still a huge believer in individuals having a, a key role in taking care of the planet, but I also definitely believe that corporations have an even bigger role. So I'm glad that I've had that full spectrum of experience to work with these different groups throughout my career. Yeah, I remember when I was living in Bali, they were just introduced to plastic and non-biodegradable objects because they had been eating off of banana leaves their whole lives. Yeah. So they didn't understand the concept of recycling 
or rubbish that couldn't go back to the earth. So everything would be in the ocean and the yeah. rivers and on the side of the road. But these expats like me who came in, they started an organization to teach them about recycling. So now I believe it's a lot better, but it just goes back to education is so important. Even for the New Yorkers on the street, they don't know. People don't know unless they're taught. I remember when I first lived in New York, the recycling is so different there than anywhere else I've lived. You have to separate the paper to the glass. <laughs> to yeah, the no, it's, it's true. It's different everywhere. And I think that's something that people don't necessarily realize. And it's a big issue in New York, especially because, of course, it's very like international city and people come from all over the world with different perspectives and different understandings, different languages, language barriers. And so getting everyone on the same page about it is really hard, but it's honestly an issue everywhere. It's the same. It's the same problem. And I actually did some recycling zero waste work in Southeast Asia in Indonesia and also in India. And yeah, it's a really big problem. And I, it's tough because I do think education is an important piece of it, but I also think probably the bigger issue is infrastructure. I think it was really irresponsible of companies to introduce products into cultures that don't have the infrastructure to support those types of materials. And honestly, we have that issue even here in the US, like the products that we're being given, all of the single use materials and things like that. We here in the US don't have the infrastructure to support that type of recycling. And so we export it to other countries. And so actually one of the reasons why you see um, so much trash in areas in the, in the global South, especially Southeast Asia, is because a lot of it is actually American exports because we're just like, oh, they'll deal with it. And the reality is they also can't deal with it. And it becomes a really big issue in terms of communities just essentially becoming landfills. And that's how it ends up in the oceans. So it's actually a very complex problem that there's a growing awareness about it, which is great, but it definitely, there's a lot of more corporate infrastructure responsibility than I think people really realize. Now there's some international bans to prevent that from happening, but it's been going on for 20 plus years. So it's, it's a, it's a real problem. It's a big, it's a big one. And there's lots Can of- you break that down? In what way? The step-by-step -step process of trash going to another country. Oh, yeah, sure. So totally. So when I'll just use New York as an example, because that's where I live. And that's where my main expertise is. As a New Yorker, we put our materials in different bins, right? Like you mentioned the paper in one glass and plastic in another. But oftentimes what happens is people don't know what goes in the correct recycling bins. And so they put the wrong stuff in there. And when that material gets collected, it goes to a central processing facility, which is often called a MRF, a material recycling facility, MRF. And a MRF is where material is sorted and then sent to where it can be processed into different materials. It's the essence of recycling, right? So me as a consumer, I send my glass bottle to the recycling plant. At the MRF separates my glass out and then sends it to a glass reprocessing plant that makes it into a new glass bottle. That's how it should work. What ends up happening is, sure, the MRF is able to separate certain materials that they can use, like metal cans and things like that, but they also end up with a whole lot of material that should not have come to them in the first place. They don't have anything to do with that material and it gets shipped off to other places. 
Sometimes that will be landfills in other um, states, such as like New York sends our material to Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, North Carolina, everywhere. But we also, it's actually more the West Coast no offense, that sends their material to Asia just because of the proximity to it. In, in the eastern states, we have a lot of landfills that are located in, in the southeast, which um, is a huge other problem that really ties into kind of like environmental justice issues, right? Appalachia, a lot of poorer areas, especially that are more black and brown communities that are like receiving our waste and, and they are essentially becoming landfill communities, which is really unfair. What does that look like? Is it just a perimeter of space that they literally dump and pile onto? Is it underground? There's different kinds of landfills. Some of them are above ground. Yeah, it's a cool thing to go to your local dump. Like I do recommend it. If you're interested in trash and recycling issues, like going to your local dump is a good experience. It's like piles of material for the most part. When a landfill is full and cannot receive any more material, typically then it will be covered with, with material and like usually sod and it'll essentially become like a, sometimes they become parks, but there's somewhat like toxic concerns there too. A lot of time the material is also burned in incinerators and that has huge air quality concerns and, and things like that as well. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that we deal with our trash that usually are not very responsible. And how close are these types of landfills towards people, towards actual communities? Yeah, it depends, but oftentimes very close. Especially some of the incinerators where materials burn, those can be like within a several block radius of a middle school, for example, which I know happened in Baltimore. Yeah, which is why tying it back to the current situation with COVID, it's one of the big reasons why there are a lot of these more low-income environmental justice communities have big problems with asthma and other underlying health concerns because they're located in areas where the air quality has been really polluted in part because of incineration. And so that was going to affect a person's ability to be able to fight off, of course, like a respiratory illness. So it all really ties in and it's actually really interesting to me and tragic, but interesting the way the zero waste movement really ties into the environmental justice movement, which has been a passion of mine for a long time. And I'm excited in a way to finally be given an opportunity to talk about it a little bit more because this wasn't really something that was people's focus. But now when people ask, oh, why should I go zero waste? It's sure it's about saving the environment, but it's also about saving people and just like doing what's right and making sure that you're not taking advantage of communities of color. Are these privately owned or are they owned by the government? That is a good question. I feel like most landfills are privately owned, but they oftentimes have partnerships with governments. But I think for the most part, they are typically privately owned, but there's like contracting involved. We have a lot in New York, a lot of the incineration and material transit happens like in the Bronx and then also in Newark, New Jersey, which again are like two of the areas where there's like a lot of these social justice concerns. So you can almost always, wherever there's an incinerator, you can almost always, or like landfill, you can pretty much always assume there's a social justice issue. And so yeah, the more we reduce our waste and the more we're aware of it and the more corporations are pushed to actually take responsibility for the actions, it's going to help a lot of these issues. Whoa. Okay. So you're saying the West Coast are mainly responsible for shipping to Asia. Now, where does that go? Is that in the middle of the ocean? 
typically the goal would be that it would often be sent to China or like Malaysia or Indonesia. I would say those are like the big exports for waste. China, a couple years ago, put a ban on receiving recyclables. They're branded as recyclables, but they're really not. It's mostly crappy single-use plastic, which can't really be recycled very effectively unless it's like a very clean product, which is typically not. And so China actually said, we're no longer going to take your waste. It was Canada too. It wasn't just the U.S. Um, and parts of Europe as well. And so suddenly these more Western countries had to scramble to be like, okay, where are we going to send our waste? And have tried to contract with places like Malaysia and Indonesia. But again, it's just the contamination is such a big issue that now these countries are saying like, we don't want your waste. And the reality is nobody should be sending their waste to another country. Like we should all be able to deal with the waste that we're producing locally, I believe. And I think that's where the idea of a circular economy becomes really important, which is like a hot term right now. It's basically the idea of keeping materials within a community for as long as possible. So instead of using something, making something, using something, and then disposing of it, and it just is sent away, we all know away doesn't actually mean anything. There is no away. It's basically just becomes somebody else's problem. So a circular economy is about the idea that we make something, we use it, and then we remake it into another product. It's the way recycling should work, but it just isn't really working that way right now. Okay, two things. The first thing, as shitty as it is, I understand China because there's so much land and land that is uninhabitable. Well, but it's Malaysia... It's really but, more that it's where people are making things. It's really less about the land and more about the fact that that is where so much production happens. And so that's really the reason why places like China and Malaysia and Indonesia were prime places to send material because in, ideally it should work, right? Like they need plastic and other materials to create new materials. And so if we're the consumers, it makes sense for us to send our materials there where it can be produced and then sent to us. And it could work really nicely, but if we're just sending them trash, they can't actually make anything with it. And so it's, it's really more about the production versus consumption than it is land use, just to clarify. Okay, so it's different from in Asia than in what you're saying, such as in Baltimore, where they incinerate it. Yeah, yeah, it's different. I think there actually is a lot of good stuff happening, but unfortunately, we have let the situation get to a very intense breaking point, which seems to be like as a society, how we like to push things, right? Like we wanted to push like COVID to a breaking point. We wanted to push climate change to a breaking point. We have also pushed the recycling industry to a breaking point. So there's a lot of cool solutions that are happening right now. Of course, the ocean plastics issue is like a big concern. And that's something that has really brought a lot of people on board with learning about the issue because uh, seeing wildlife choking on plastic is really heartbreaking, of course. So there's a lot of great nonprofits and a lot of organizations that are doing really great work related to this right now. There's a very cool bill that we're all hoping is going to get passed called the Break Free from Plastic Act that sets up a lot of opportunities to both reduce the way that we're using plastics and create opportunities to use the materials that we currently have on hand. There are bills requiring materials to contain a higher amount of recycled content that's actually happening in California right now. So there was a recent bill passed that now says new material, new plastic, has 
to have a certain percentage of recycled content, which means they're going to have to start recycling a lot more plastic than they are right now. So look out for that because that's happening in real time. There's also organizations like mine, which I work for an organization called the U.S. Green Building Council, and we have a certification program called TRUE, which is zero waste certification, and it's focused on helping companies and corporations make better life cycle choices for their materials and really actually focus more on reduction and reuse and take the conversation away from just recycling because recycling, I think we've all thought recycling was the answer. Like that has just been the solution this whole time. Oh, let's just recycle it, but it's not. And so we need to start looking at these other strategies. There's a lot of like great food delivery platforms that are suddenly offering food service in reusable containers, or you can get a reusable cup from a vending machine. These solutions are popping up. Loop from TerraCycle, you can order groceries in reusable containers, and then they'll pick them up and take them back and clean them for you and then send you new new products. So it's a very exciting time to be working in this industry because a lot of stuff is happening really quickly. And I think I think we're working on it. I don't know that we like have the number one solution right now, but I think we're moving in that direction. And I'm excited to be able to stay on the pulse of it because yeah, it's, there's a new thing happening every day as it relates to zero waste in the circular economy. What are some companies out there now that are good examples of this? Yeah, so Loop that I mentioned is a TerraCycle company. TerraCycle, of course, recycles hard to recycle products. Like you can uh, send your single-use plastics to them. And if they're clean, they'll be properly distributed. But they have this Loop company, which is a grocery delivery service um, that sends you materials in reusable containers, which is great. Deliver Zero is a local to New York food service company. It's like uh, seamless, except in reusable packaging as opposed to like single use packaging. My company, True, which is a certification program for facilities. There's so many and they're so local and so regional. I think even like your local co-op is suddenly offering, maybe different with COVID, but like bulk options. Like even that is a really simple solution. Even just not asking for a straw when you go out to eat, or if you're getting delivered delivery from a normal delivery service, just ask to have them not include a fork and knife, a plastic fork and knife. It's so crazy that delivery usually comes with a plastic fork and knife because typically you're going to get delivered to your house where I would say most people are going to have a fork and knife available. So you don't need, we don't need these materials. We're just like so used to having them and using them. It's just like this automatic thing. And we really need to just realize that we don't need all these plastic products all the time. It's excessive and it's unnecessary. And I think if you start looking for it, you're going to see reusable options everywhere. And you're going to see opportunities in your own life, even if you just bring a reusable water bottle with you. There's so many small things that you can do that are going to have a big impact over the course of a long time. Is there a larger corporation to the scale of Amazon or any of that nature who are good examples of this? It's a complicated question. We have a lot of corporations that we're working with that we're really excited about the direction that they're heading. We work with Colgate Palmolive. They're one of our biggest clients. They've made a commitment for all their facilities uh, to be true certified. And they've done incredible work in reducing their waste, which is phenomenal. And I think they're a really good example of what a 
corporation can do to meet its goals. Amazon, Walmart, a lot of these big uh, players, they have strong environmental commitments that they've made. I think now is this moment of seeing if they can actually do it, right? I think a lot of these commitments were made within the last 12 to 24 months, and a lot of them hit a carbon target or hit a waste reduction target by 2025 or 2030. And I think now is the moment where I'm really like, are you going to do it? And how are you going to do it? And excited to see the direction that they move with those things. But most corporations are going to have a really aggressive sustainability target. And it's going to include waste in some degree. I mean, even like the Coca-Colas and the Pepsis of the world, like they have really aggressive recycling goals for their materials. And they want all of their products to be recyclable or to be made of recyclable products. And it's going to take some innovation for them to get there. And part of me has some inner skepticism, but I also think the tools are there. Like we can do it. We've got ourselves into this situation because we invented this thing called plastic. Let's invent our way out of it. And I think we can. It's just going to take a lot lot of innovation and creativity and passion. Like you have to want to do this. It's not easy. It's a mess. Yeah. What are the main aversions that you see besides cost of material? From whose perspective aversion? Of wanting to change to make this environmentally friendly. I don't know that I actually see a lot of aversion. I think most of the people that I'm in communication with and that I've seen speak, they want to do something about it. Like they are motivated. I think most of the people that are working in the circular economy space, plastic pollution does not look good for them. If you're, if you're part of the Coke or Pepsi company, those are the products that are washing up on beaches that are choking turtles, that are killing whales, that are strangling dolphins. That does not look good for your company. That is a bad look. And so they are motivated to do something about it. So I do not, it's interesting. Like, I think the climate change conversation is like, one conversation. The plastic pollution conversation is another one. People aren't deniers of plastic pollution. You cannot deny that. There's too much plastic out there and it is killing wildlife and strangling the planet. That is irrefutable. So I think it's really interesting. There's a huge connection between the climate conversation and the plastic conversation, but I'll meet people where they are. If they're not willing to talk about climate change, I will happily show them really sad photos of wildlife. But you do not get plastic pollution deniers. People want to do something about that problem. There is not an aversion to that. It's just how to do it and how much money they're able to put towards it and how quickly that change can happen. What are the steps to switch over? As individuals, there's certain purchasing power that we have. and we can Oh, I meant more for corporations. For indi individuals, it's obvious. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. For corporations, I think there's how much detail to get into this. Okay. So there is a, a new option out there, which is called EPR, which stands for Extended Producer Responsibility. There's a lot of information about this on the internet. So I would say I'll touch on it briefly, but then if people are interested, go read about it in more detail. But EPR is basically the idea that the companies that produce these products should be responsible for their management. That is not what happens right now. Right now, these companies produce these materials and that's it. They're done. With extended producer responsibility, they would have to contribute or pay for in its entirety the recycling of those products, 
the education about how to recycle those products, what to do with that material to turn it into new life. That's something that has a lot of opportunity to make a really big difference because right now what's happening is there's just so many different kinds of materials that are out there. There's no real consistency and alignment about how they're made and how they're developed and then how they're able to be recycled. If companies are forced to take more responsibility for that and be in charge of recycling those materials, they're going to make sure those materials can be recycled because it's on them. Otherwise, they're going to have a huge problem on their hands. So figuring out how to make materials that are more recyclable and making them out of recycled content, I think is a huge step. Also just shifting to reusables. Like we just need to get away from this conversation about single use stuff. It, there needs to be reusable options. And to go along with that, there needs to be reusable drop-off options. So it shouldn't necessarily be up to the consumer to go to the store and only have single-use plastic available. We should be able to go to the store and have reusable products that we can buy at the store and then have a return program. That's gonna make a huge difference as well. I think there's a lot of different options out there for companies. I think extended producer responsibility is one. I think laws requiring hired recycled content is one. I think shifting the conversation to the reusable option is another one. There's a lot, there's a lot of strategies and it's just going to depend on like the individual corporation and what their product is for how they're going to deal with it. And this is going to be like, this is a long, this is a long-term goal, right? This is not going to happen overnight. Certain places like Oregon are really leading the way with that. They have a, even like a, a bottle deposit system and a returnable bottle program where you can actually buy into a reusable bottle system when you buy beer and then it'll get taken back and made into a new filled it up again with beer. And we really need to see that kind of thing happening in more places. And there's gonna be leaders and there's gonna be stragglers, but eventually the hope is that everybody's gonna catch up. But I do think it's probably gonna to happen to some degree on a state by state basis based on some of these laws that we're seeing go into effect. A database would be great for people to see who's on what side of progress. They do have a website for B Corps. You can check out where these companies stand in terms of a larger perspective of the earth. Yeah, and checking out the Break Free from Plastic Act, I think, is also a great way to learn about some of the legislation that's going to push some of this change and uh, uses examples of some of the states that I mentioned that are doing these kinds of things. Are there any countries that are leading the way as well outside of the U.S.? Yeah, definitely. Europe is way far ahead of us. They have um, extended producer responsibility in, in many countries and have seen a lot of success with that. And I think they even might have more of a regional EU requirement for that. Canada's doing great things. And I think a lot of times we focus on more Western countries as, oh, what are Canada and the U.S. doing? But actually, when we look at some of these more like I hate the word developing country because I think that's like a really colonial term, but developing countries, they're actually leading the way, right? Because those are places where poverty is really high and there aren't as many resources and there isn't as much infrastructure. And so those people are motivated to reuse materials and be resourceful. The reason why we're in this mess is because we're just, we're too damn privileged. We have too much material. We're too consumerist. If we didn't have so much material being thrown at us all the time, we would be more resourceful. And so I think when we look at places like Africa and Southeast Asia and in South America, like these are very resourceful places because they have to be, the people have to be. And I think we've just gotten lazy. But it's not entirely the individual's fault. I think it's really a lot, again, of the corporate drive and also the, the government legislation that kind of just allows corporations to run wild without a lot of restraint.
It's always fun to talk about the plastic waste issue. It's obviously something that I care really deeply about. And for anybody that's listening, personal responsibility has a big piece of it, but push the corporations, push the local businesses that you support to make a change, even just again, with like plastic silverware, straws, things like that. I think we're really going to see a revolution with this. All right. Thanks, Celeste. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks for having me on here. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.